Hi, I'm Josh. And I'm Lindsay. And this is the Hideaway Podcast, episode 59. 59. That's German. <laughs> quite a week last week we did we, we had a long week we released the first ever virtual reality circus and dance experience designed specifically for viewing in a vr headset and we had a trip out to san diego and las vegas yes yeah, so that we we did a lot <laughs> we have some uh, croissant in your teeth oh it's good that people can't see that that <laughs> croissant on the podcast <laughs> this is an audio only maybe they can hear the croissant in my voice but if you uh, have an internet connection and a smartphone, go check out this experience we put out. It's totally free. It's on our website, hideawaycircus.com. It's six of the best circus acts in six absolutely beautiful locations all around the U.S. and North America because we have one in Montreal. <laughs> and the show is designed to be experienced in a VR headset. So what does that really mean? It means that all these performers have reimagined their acts to perform them as though they're performing it just for one person. Mm -hmm. And we place the camera at spots that it might be a little bit too dangerous to actually watch it in real life. The The last scene is a crossbow scene with previous guests, Mr. and Mrs. G, and they shoot crossbow arrows right past the camera so you get the feeling of what it's like to be shot at without actually any of the danger. Yes. I mean, it's a really cool experience. I highly recommend it, obviously. <laughs> but it is really insane. Um, some of the talent and, and the... And the like way you 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 Josh and the uh, performer really reimagined how you present an act for virtual reality versus just like putting a camera on stage while a artist is doing their their normal act. You really like recreated all of the acts into a viewing party for one. Exactly. One of the things to consider about the virtual reality experience we made is that you can watch it on just a mobile phone or on your computer screen, and you can look all around by dragging your cursor, which is fine. You'll get the idea and the gist of it, but I can't undersell how much we assumed and designed it for people who can just turn their head. And if you want to see what's happening to the left, all you got to do is lightly turn your neck and look to your left as opposed to having to drag and drop your cursor, which is a little bit more challenging and a little bit more annoying. <laughs> but... Uh, it's going to be an interesting year for us as we push this VR circus out. The VR industry is a little bit nascent. Most of our listeners probably don't have VR headsets. This might even be the first VR thing they watch. So it'll be out in a bunch of uh, movie festivals that have 360 VR divisions in them. And now we're sort of just playing around with different ways to, to push this out to a beautiful wide audience. If any of our listeners have super good ideas on how to do that, other than the internet and movie festivals, do let us know at hello at hideawaycircus.com. So this past week we were in San Diego and we can announce that shortly we're going to, we have some like really exciting news that'll be coming in, well, we were assuming mid-March, but now the president of our country messed up our press release because he is also visiting San Diego when we were going to release our press release, but whatever. Um, so it'll be the end of March. I'm super excited about it. I think it's going to be, again, kind of like an experience that I've never seen before. And I'm so excited to be working on this project with the team that we've collaborated with. Yeah, if you've been listening carefully to every episode, you've probably been able to piece together what this next project is. We haven't announced that we've been working on for the last six months pretty intensely. 
But for those of you who are just tuning in to listen to Hubby's Wisdom, you got to listen to the next podcast to find out what the next great thing is. Yeah. After we had our few days in San Diego, we then drove to Las Vegas. What a beautiful drive. Yeah. It was. I mean, it's so pretty. The desert is just so pretty. And we go and we saw Misbehave Game Show, our show at Bally's Casino with Amy Saunders and Brett Fister. And it is so funny. It's so good. It's so funny. Those two are really geniuses, both in their own right. Yeah, woman. So the whole premise of the show is that it's iPhones versus others, and you can kind of sit on any side, and there's really no rules, and, you know, to to get points, you got to ask for points, and, you know, it's like all these crazy games that Amy came up with, and then Brett does some dancing. But um, one lady was so into it that she flashed the whole audience, like full-on skin flash. Yeah, both boobies out. <laughs> Yeah, she really wanted them points. And uh, yeah, I you know I don't usually describe it this way, but I heard somebody in Las Vegas describe the show to their friend as kind of an adult take on Whose Line Is It Anyways. And what they meant by that is if you've seen the show Whose Line Is It Anyways, Drew Carey gives out points and the points are meaningless and there's lots of really funny games that they give points out. And in that way, the show is similar to that. But there's also circus and variety and dirtiness and... Vegas culture in there. Yeah, it's really fun. It's at the back room at Bally's. If you're going to Vegas, I highly recommend it. Not just because it's our show, but because it's actually really, really good. And uh, then we also saw Piff, the Magic Dragons show. I strongly recommend that too after you buy your misbehaved tickets. <laughs> what else do you see while you go to Vegas? Piff. Go see Piff. He's at the Flamingo. And, you know, Piff uh, has been a friend of ours for years. And we saw his show when he was in New York. I don't know. Three years ago? That sounds right. Um, but it was, like, really awesome to see the newest version in Las Vegas. He's really, like... Stepped it up. Stepped it up. And, you know, his assistant is this woman, Jade. And she's, like, the a Vegas showgirl, like, over-the-top Vegas showgirl. And it it plays really well, especially in the space at the Flamingo. Um, and so it's... I think it's just so tight. Like, his comedy is so good. He had the room at the, like, tip of his finger. It was really good. Yeah, if you like magic, you like British humor. You like little doggies. Little doggies, little animals. Go Mr. see Piff Piffles. as well. They also have a podcast called The Piff Pod, I think is what it's called. Oh, so yeah, Piff Pod. Maybe we should try to get a Piff on here, do some crossover with The Piff Pod. Yeah, I think he had like a jazz mus- musician on there that I was looking at, uh-huh. um, which I didn't know, but I'm sure if you like jazz... He's probably somewhere in the I listened pool. to their inaugural episode. That was really good. Oh, I yeah. think they're like maybe on in, in the teens maybe with their, oh, cool. their episode numbers. Yeah. So um, we also saw Absence, but I actually didn't see it. <laughs> I was supposed to see it. And then I got like super sick. It was so weird. It felt like I was really, 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 really drunk, but I hadn't had a sip of alcohol. Sure. <laughs> but in Vegas, you know, my Uber driver was like, are you okay? I was like, yeah, I just don't feel well. And he probably thought I was like, oh, another girl who drank too much. <laughs> but I, uh, but I, I'm sad I missed it. I've seen it before, but I did want to see it again. They had some really good new acts in it. I hadn't seen before. The Sia Carbines does a really good contortion bubble number. Uh, there's the Silicon Valley girls who are three Ukrainian uh, acrobats who do a uh, pretty traditional Ukrainian acrobatic act. And it's always, those acts are always very dependent on the individual performance being good and interesting. And these girls were actually very captivating and interesting and uh, good dancers. And there was humor in it. One of the things I love about Absinthe is how they just continue to rotate the cast over the last seven years. So like every time I go, there's something new to something see. Something new. Well, the 
producer of Absinthe is Ross Mollison, who we have had on the podcast before. His company is called Spiegel World, and they are in the throes of opening their new show, Opium, at Cosmopolitan. The ro- What's the room? I, I'm the- so confused by that whole Rolls Royce Live, Vegas Nocturne, Spiegel World Ballroom. It's very confusing. So I think it's now called the Spiegel World Ballroom at Rose at, Abbott Lye, which is the name at of the Cosmopolitan. Co- at Cosmopolitan, and the show is named Opium. But we interviewed Ross and uh, the star of the show, Harry M. Howie. It's kind of an odd interview because Harry's in character, and sort of the thing about this podcast is that we're talking to real people about their real lives. <laughs> But I think it's pretty funny. It'll be uh, the next episode, so you'll have a chance to hear yes. uh, more behind the scenes of that show. But our friends that we were with in Vegas, they had bought tickets to see Ka at MGM. And the show was canceled. And I did some digging on TripAdvisor because, you know, you can figure out anything on TripAdvisor. And the two stages collided and the show's down for like two weeks. Yeah, I mean, one of those stages costs as much, or sorry, weighs as much as a fully loaded 707, you know, Boeing massive plane. So you can just imagine that going into the other one, sure to do some damage. Yeah. It's slightly alarming that the stages collided. It is. You know, I don't know. I just feel like there's so much money in that show and those stages are so big. You'd think you'd be like, we can't let the stages collide. But they did. I mean, and now has, the show's out for two weeks. It has been going for 10 years. So, you know, yeah. one incident like this in 10 years ain't such a bad track record. True. But like, yeah. Okay. I guess I'm being a little harsh on it, but it was just funny. Anyway. So one thing that's been going on in this circus world news these past few weeks is the controversy of the fact that women were very underrepresented at Cirque du Demain. That's the Paris Festival. That's the Paris Festival. And I think there's been a lot of talk about it. And I don't know if we have anything new to add other than our opinions. Um, you know, and everyone has one. Does seem a little cray that there was like seven women out of like 32 performers. Right? Is that the static statistics? No, static. I think it was like 35 out of seven, and they were all in group acts. And they were but, all in group acts. But like, apparently, previously, there were like two women who were booked for solo acts, but they got injured a few weeks beforehand. Yeah, I mean, I think like you can make excuses for it, like, but that would be nine women, you know, and still like 30 men. But I, you know, you have to, you have to believe that there are really talented women who must have applied. Well, they say there aren't. They say that the ratio, the ratio ripped in the festival was the same ratio who applied. So that, you know, only 25% of right. people who applied were women. So then all you women out there, you better apply next year because I love watching you perform. <laughs> Did that sound creepy, though? No, not too creepy, I don't think. <laughs> I also think there was, you know, the whole the whole kind of the women who were in the show were stereotypical women and like petite and had crystals on their costumes and which wasn't true um but like that's also should be applauded like if that's your persona as a woman is to be little and sexy and that's how you feel good about like performing your act like that should also be applauded you know i don't think it's anyone's right to say what is what a woman should and shouldn't be especially another woman that's my point of view but you know Obviously, everyone has their own own opinions, and I don't know. 
probably a talk to, we've been, we've talked, it's been talked to death, but I felt like I should say something as a woman. Well, there you go. It's been said. You laid it out. <laughs> I didn't lay it out. I kind of like stumbled through it, but <laughs> it's fine. <laughs> so another interesting article that I think transitions really well into today's podcast guest, we saw in The Independent, which is a uh, British newspaper publication, saying that as of 2020 or even really the end of 2019, circus animals will be banned from circus in all of England. Don't know if that applies to Scotland and Ireland. doesn't really matter. But this is just another step in the continued march towards no animals in circus, including legally no animals are allowed in circuses. And uh, you'll hear on today's episode how we sort of take apart animal rights, animals performing in the circus, what the relationship is between animals and humans. Hovey, our podcast guest, trained bears early on in his career. And, and a polar bear? Doesn't, like, doesn't polar bear fall under the category of bears? Oh, <laughs> maybe. I don't know. I'm not a big bear aficionado. I think polar bears are a kind of bear. Oh, um, well, that would make sense. But it's... Uh, you know, it's very easy to, to, to see that as progress. I think there's definitely a way to frame it as, as troublesome, and you'll hear some of that discussion in today's episode. On today's episode, we have Hovey Burgess, and yes, that is his real name, and I actually finally asked him if that was his real name, and it is Hovey Burgess. What a good name. We went to Hovey's apartment in the Lower East Side. It's a duplex, and it had so much circus history on the top floor, he has all his juggling equipment. He has a shop. It was just like a magical playland for a circus. We reference a lot of things that are visually in his apartment. So what I did is I took a lot of photos, and we will link them in the podcast description. Hovey's had a legendary career. I think some people will know exactly who he is, and others will have never heard of him because he's a New York staple. But if you did circus in America from, the, from 1966 through... 2016, you have probably been taught by Hovey at some point. He did 100 semesters teaching at NYU, but he's also taught at Del Arte in California. He taught at the Ringling Brothers uh, Clown College. He's taught at Juilliard. Uh, Hovey's written books on circus uh, that many people have read. One's called Circus Techniques. That's from 1977. And Hovey has had a really interesting career. He sort of fell into circus, even though he always had a passion for juggling. He... Uh, Ended up first touring with the Hunt Brothers Circus, and he talks a lot about that story. But Hovey is truly full of wisdom, and I really love having guests who are from a previous generation before the 80s. Even you know, we have a lot of guests who came up in the 80s. We have guests who separately came up in the 90s and then the 2000s. But Hovey came up in the 60s and 70s, so you're going to hear a lot of circus history from that time period. And I found it absolutely fascinating. If you like our podcast, make sure to subscribe on iTunes, rate us on iTunes. It's really the most helpful thing that you can do for the podcast. Like us on Facebook, follow us on Instagram, Twitter, tweet us, or email us at hello at hadwaycircus.com. Here is our interview with Hovey. Hovey, where are you from originally? Well, I was born in uh, Vermont uh, in 1940, September 8th. But I, did, I have no recollections of Mar Vermont except re revisiting it as growing up because my uh, maternal grandparents were there. Uh, I was pretty much brought up in New Jersey for the first 12 years. And now I'm away from New Jersey. And then I was in the Midwest, uh, uh, Illinois and uh, Michigan 
until uh, I finished high school. Were your parents circus performers? They were definitely not circus performers, although my father could juggle and my mother could walk on stilts. But How did they, they acquire those skills? Well, uh, my father uh, took care of a, a Burgess lunch that was in Freeport, Maine, and uh, his parents owned the store. And uh, when he, you know, when in his youth he learned to juggle, he taught himself to juggle just waiting for customers to come into the into the Burgess lunch. And then my mother said her father just made stilts for her, and so she walked on them. So <laughs> when I built stilts for my myself in Michigan, I built the stilts and then tried to figure out how to ride. My mom came over and grabbed the stilts, jumped up on them, and went, you know, like speeding across the yard. And I was like astonished. Why were you moving from um, place to place for your childhood? Um, yeah, I was sort of a corporate brat. At least that's what I call it, corporate brat. My father worked for General Foods Corporation, and he kept getting, you know, he, he was in Central Labs, which is in Hoboken. That's when we lived in New Jersey. And then from that, he got transferred to Gaines Dog Food, which had a kennel with dogs in Kankakee, Illinois. And from there, they combined the dog food with the Post cereals, and that was in Battle Creek, Michigan, of course, it had to be. <laughs> Uh, and so we moved there, and it just we, we we moved wherever my father was working. He was working with General Foods, and he got transferred around a lot. He ended up in Terrytown, but by that time I left the nest. Hmm. Were you an only child? I'm an only child. Yes, oh wow! And brothers and sisters. Uh, so juggling was a great hobby to do by yourself <laughs> when you're uh... and still walking. Yeah, I think um, developing an imagination and also doing something like juggling. Uh, that you can, although I must say I, I much more enjoy juggling with people than I do by myself mm. anymore. Uh, like, uh, you know, I enjoy juggling with Jack and Cecil and the whole troupe at uh, Circus Flora. I prefer that. To, I'm not a solo juggler. Really. Um, in, in the work I'm doing now, it's uh, it's mainly foot juggling I'm interested in action now, which and it was never my thing to do. I taught my, I taught a student at NYU who eventually became my wife, how to foot juggle, and then uh, uh, we we were having some little marital problems, and the therapist uh, suggested that I not learn to juggle foot juggle, because she needed to have something she could do better than me. Mm. That did not save the relationship, <laughs> and now that that relationship ended, somewhere around 1980. And uh, many years later, I feel like I could learn foot juggling. It's Enough time late. has passed now. <laughs> it's a little late, but uh, the ploy of not learning it didn't work to save my marriage. So, so why not? Why not? Right. Yeah. Yeah. So that's precisely what I'm doing. Also, with foot juggling, you get to, like, I think, relax a little bit more because you're like, laying down. It, you know, that part of it is a little counterintuitive. Oh. But the foot juggling <laughs> itself is very intuitive. You, Nobody has to teach you how to foot juggle because, like, your maybe your earliest memories of lying on your back trying to manipulate something out in front of you, you know, or on top of you or above right. you, whether it's a blanket or a toy or something, you know. You, uh, so you, your instinct is usually good as to how to do it. The trick is to get your body to do it. Mm. And uh, I, my intention is to become one of the greatest jugglers of all time. I think having you already in the with a, with a lovely assistant 
eight years less than half my age. (laughs) (laughs) So what was your first, did your parents bring you to the circus when you were little or how did you get inspired? Many of my earliest memories are are going to the circus. Uh, I know I went to see Raymond Brothers in Madison Square Garden at a very young age. Because we lived in Jersey, we lived in Dumont, New Jersey, which is just, you know, a tunnel or bridge away. And I loved New York as a child. It was like so much more fun than New Jersey. I didn't know about the dark underside of New York at that time, of course. (laughs) I only knew about the fun stuff like the circus and the rodeo and stuff like that. But yeah, I I fell in love with New York before I was five. Also, there's a small circus called Hunt Brothers that I eventually worked for. And through my library and my research, I was able to determine that Uncle Don was a guy who had this radio show. And I remember, I have this distinct memory of going to you know, of, uh, I don't know if it's going to bed, but he was talking to, you know, to me over the radio and telling me, don't forget to brush your teeth. And so, so my mom loved me to watch, you know, listen to this radio show, Uncle Don. <laughs> And Uncle Don was doing personal appearances with Hunt Brothers Circus. And I don't know whether my mother took me there because of Uncle Don or because of the circus, but she took me to see it. I saw him, you know, I saw some of his personal appearances. Oh, and yeah, and he didn't look anything like I expected him to look. That's what I remember. <laughs> Neither did Arthur Godfrey. That's the thing about uh, radio, right? Huh? That's the thing about radio, right? Yeah, you know, these disembodied you, you have voices. This vision right. of what people look like on the radio, and they never do. <laughs> Almost never do. And you know, it's interesting because, like, they used to, I used to listen to radio drama all the time. You know, and it'd be like Gunsmoke and stuff like that, and just be these, like a western. You know, but all those guys are doing are reading scripts. They didn't have even have like cowboy boots or cowboy hat or anything. <laughs> no horses, no nothing. But they created the illusion. I get some coconuts, bang them together, and you got that clippity clop. Clippity clop of the galloping. So after high school's sort of finishing up, are you thinking of running away and joining a circus? Or are you thinking about going to a regular university? Where is your your mind at? Well, that's, that's kind of an interesting thing. Uh, maybe we can sort some of this out a little bit. Yeah. Because uh, my father went to Bowdoin College. He's graduated in the year of 1938. And Bowdoin College has a mascot of a polar bear. And I was playing, he said, well, you know, because you're my son and you went, and I went to Bowdoin, you have a little bit better chance of getting in because they like that. They like uh, second generation people to come and stuff. And uh, so it was pretty much a pre-gone, you know, a pre-gone, pre-gone conclusion? Foregone. thank you. A foregone conclusion that I would go to Bowdoin and therefore I had to take Latin and all the, stuff in high school that I would not otherwise have any interest in taking. Uh, chemistry and all that stuff, uh, you know, it was on the college track to the extent that high school was optional. It's not very optional, but uh, I was, some of it was, I think, when you got to the upper levels of high school. Mm. And uh, so then uh, basically two things happened. I'm very compulsive. So I was, one day I was, I got a cold of one of my father's catalogs from Bowdoin, and I was there was a map of the dorms and everything, and I thought, well, you know, I think I want to be a really great college student. I want to be like the big man on campus. So this is the way I'm going to accomplish this. This is my plan for this. 
before I even get to Bowdoin, I'm going to know where every building is. I'm going to know where the pathways to between buildings. I'm going to I'm going to have that all down. So all I have to do is you know work on my studies and get good grades and straight A's, and I'll be and my dad will be so proud of me. So I spent the whole day like preparing. I've got coming up with all these questions to ask my father, and he got home at a tired tired after a long day at work. And he wanted no part of this. He was like, I don't remember. You know, it's like, and I was like, somehow I decided then I was not going to Bowdoin. And I did. And I was very stubborn about it. Now I have sort of mixed feelings about it. You know, I, I'm, I'm, because I have a polar bear act, Yeah. Uh, it's, it's sort of like a come full circle. Yeah. So, well, that's where the polar bear comes from. So did you end up going yeah. to a different university, or did you not go at all? Yeah, well, I was not going to go to college at all. Um, it wasn't an issue of paying for it, because I knew my, I knew up front my parents would pay for it. I mean, that's, I mean, you shouldn't have that card, but I had it. And so um, then finally my mother came, and she said, uh, okay, so you don't want to go to college. Uh, I talked to your principal at school, and he said, you have really, really good grades, and you really have a lot on the ball, and uh, would you like to go to some other place? Well, meanwhile, I had been reading Theater Arts magazine, and there was an ad in there for the Pasadena Playhouse, mm -hmm. College of Theater Arts. And I had no desire to be an actor, but I did have a desire to be a juggler. So I would look, you know, the yeah. poem is up there. Uh, so I would... Uh, Fantasize about well, makeup would help me, you know, or you know, or maybe I'd be a swashbuckler. You know, maybe I'd be, you know, swinging on a rope, you know, like a pirate. <laughs> maybe that's what acting is all about. Because I had never even seen a play. I saw one college, one high school play. Do you remember what? And it was? I thought I don't remember what the play was. I only remember that it was, you know, it was uh, like the seniors doing it. Uh -huh. we were, like I was just in grade school when I saw it. And I thought, I honestly thought, a play is what you did if you didn't have cameras to make a movie. Fair enough. <laughs> you were just, oh God, you were just faking it. <laughs> <laughs> and so subsequently I went to summer theater. When after I applied, I got in and I, I said, oh my God, I've never seen theater. I don't even know anything about it. We, we never came to the theater. We always came to a rodeo or uh, the zoo or the Museum of Natural History or the circus. I hadn't even seen anything. I don't know if I ever saw theater except that one high school production. And <laughs> now you're going to a theater school. I know my parents occasionally would, when we came to Illinois, they would go to Chicago and see Damn Yankees or something mm. like that. I had no experience of any of that. None. Just circuses, you know, <laughs> stuff like And shows. One, I remember a minstrel show. Um, but I had no experience of theater. And uh, so I was, you know, seeing plays. It was the time about of blue denim and stuff. At any rate, I got into Pasadena and uh, I studied there for a while. And then I decided that this is not going to make me a juggler. And I left. I got, a, I withdrew. But you jumped a step. When did you decide you wanted to become a juggler, though, in that process? If you know you want to leave because you want to be a juggler, somewhere <laughs> there you'd have to have made that. I felt that I was, I was, I, I didn't feel I had the time to practice, that I, I wanted to practice three to six hours a day. Mm, had the bug. I didn't feel like I could do the classes as well. And I had no, I, I had no desire to be an actor. 
But it, I mean, it had been a good education because I had no very little education in the arts. And so it was very good. And then, then after I left, I missed it. And I finally went back after quite a few adventures at uh, going to a junior college in Battle Creek, Michigan called Kellogg Community College, and then going to the FSU circus where I did circus, flunked out, because that's all I did was circus. And <laughs> because of my grades, I got into harder courses, which I then failed. And uh, then I joined Hunt Brothers Circus. And then when- So how old are you when you joined Hunt Brothers? I would have been 21. Wow. So you were bopping around colleges from about 17 yeah. to 20? Let's say it took me, I, I took me five colleges and seven years to get an undergraduate education. <laughs> so how did you get that first job at Hunt, though? Did you just walk up to the back lot and say, hey, I can juggle? Or Most of my circus jobs were offered to me. In the case of Hunt, I actually went from New York or Connecticut or wherever we were living then. I mean, either I was in New York or I was in Connecticut, I don't know which, probably was in Connecticut. So I went through New York down to Florence, New Jersey, which was our winter quarters. And I requested a job. And they said, just show up on the first day, come to Hempstead, Hempstead Long Island, mm. and we'll hire you. So uh, on the appointed day, I went to Hempstead, Long Island and got the job instantly. Were your parents frustrated with you? Yes. Yeah. They they did not think that uh, circus was a legitimate way to make a living. Uh, they uh, and it was quite a struggle. Mm -hmm. It was quite a struggle because uh, I mean the fact that my mother walked on stilts and that my father juggled did not help. At all. <laughs> Those anything, are just hobbies. That was like ammunition for you don't you can do this stuff but right. you don't have to make a living at it. Uh, even even very late, my mom passed away about two years ago, but when my dad passed away about 25 years ago, she gave me some quite a large amount of money. And she said, now you don't have to go out with circus flora anymore. She just didn't but get still it. Didn't yeah. get it. Yeah. <laughs> it's not about the money. It's funny, though, that she thought that theater was a, was a good path. Well, let's face it, most people, I mean, I, I, now that I'm not at NYU, I think I can say this on the record. <laughs> um, parents will pay for kids to go to NYU, despite how much the tuition is, if they're studying theater and might become a famous actor. Yep. Yeah. It's that simple. And that's, that's the gamble. Mm -hmm. Because we train far more actors than there are work for. <laughs> right. Uh, circus is a little different, you know. If you if you determine you want to do circus and you're willing to do pay the dues mm -hmm. and jump through the hoops, mm -hmm. you really have much have a pretty good chance of doing it. If it's, if it's the one thing in life you want to do, like me, you know. Yeah. My theory about life, and I I have that yet to prove all of it, but my theory is that you can do anything, but you can't do everything. Mm -hmm. And if you if you have this one thing you want to do. You've got to subordinate everything else to it mm -hmm. to make it really work. I'm learning that. <laughs> so, uh, but that's my philosophy. It's, I, I didn't get it from anyone else, and I, you know, I don't, I don't know if that is legitimate or makes sense or it would lead to frustration on the part of other people. I have my frustrations, yes, but this is the way I, I feel. If at 77 I want to become famous as a foot juggler with a beautiful assistant, that I could do that. That's it. You know what I mean? I can't ask for any other wishes to be granted. Just that one. Mm -hmm. And uh, 
if I start asking for a second wish to be granted, that's going to throw a, a, a wrench in them. And the wishes. Into the words. <laughs> and of course, the, the way I, that, given that philosophy, there's no way to really know, except that I commit. Mm-hmm. I don't say, when, like the, the video you saw of me doing my acts, uh, seemed to have been a rather a successful one. I mean, we can't be sure because a lot of those people knew me and liked me, but uh, it seemed to be reasonably successful. And uh, yeah, I think I, that'll work. I, people say, "Well, I knew it'd be good, but it's five times better than I thought it would be." Mm-hmm. I think it's better than I thought it would yeah. be. Well, the thing but, that surprised me when I saw it was how self-aware the number is, which is what really makes it. I think self-aware, extra yeah. funny. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, a lot went into it. Yeah. You know, a really lot went into it. I've known Licks for a, quite a long time, but... Um, well, let's circle back to that act at the end as we get towards also, the, the present. Also, well, I would love to, when we get to that point, would ta- would love to talk about how you kind of started creating that act, because I think that's something that a lot of people, like, don't know how to do, maybe. Like, where where does an idea come from and all that? So we should definitely talk about yeah. Well, if you, let's jump back to where um, I was talking about the foot juggling because you asked me a good question about that and about how, and I was talking about how uh, in, intuitive it is. You can figure it out. Uh, you, you know, if the cylinder falls down and you're trying to spin it on your feet, you did something wrong. <laughs> and if it stays up there, you did something right. And it's just figuring out what works and what doesn't work. It's, it, it's not... Uh, rocket scientists or uh, brain surgeons at work. It's, uh, you know, an infant on their back trying to figure out what to do if they can't walk. But the deceptive thing is that it takes an enormous amount of exertion to do it. Mm. So let's say I practice it for 10 minutes or five minutes or even three minutes. I have to sit up to rest or I will get so exhausted that I won't, it won't hit me until I stand up. Mm. So, yes, it's re- relatively restful because you're lying on your back yeah. and doing something, which most jobs, they're, you're one or the other. <laughs> <laughs> you're either, well, I can think of one profession. Mostly, uh, you're either lying on your back and not working or you're you know, not on your back and you are working in most cases. Yeah. Um, it's the oldest profession, and foot juggling are probably the other two exceptions <laughs> to that rule. And uh, but it's exhausting, so uh, uh, I'm very conscious of that. So if I feel I need to rest, I can't rest in that position. I'm going to get up to rest, okay. so that I really have uh, a good uh, uh, measure of the calibration of how exhausted I am. Mm-hmm. And I want to practice a lot, but it, it's, it's hard. It's grueling just to do a little bit. But yeah, because I think that's the one thing I can do. I mean, uh, in, in terms of putting together an act, there's a lot you can do, but there's nothing like having this skill. I mean, having this skill is, and I can still work on that. And because of my history with foot juggling, I'm behind, you know. Yeah, you got a lot to catch up on. I got to catch up on it. And, uh, but that means to me that the other ones, like, uh, you can't phone it in, but I mean, I can, I can probably handle all the other techniques and the non-technical aspects of the performing at this point. 
So when you were younger and getting into juggling, you have this first show you're working on Hunt. Like, what is the juggling goal at that point? What is the thing you're working towards? Well, the first job with Hunt was as a prop man, not as a juggler. Oh. So you weren't even on stage? No. Well, I was because I was a prop man. Prop, prop on? But But we had, that's actually another interesting aspect of this. But um, we were in Hempstead, and what happened is we did the show in Hempstead, and then we went out under canvas after that. It's very similar to Ma- what Ringing Brothers used to do. They'd be in Madison Square Garden, then they'd go out under canvas in Philadelphia. Or for a while, they did New York and then Boston Arena, mm-hmm. Boston Garden. That was before there were any other gardens. That was right. about in New York and Boston. Then they'd go out under canvas. Well, this was the same deal, but we also had three acts that would not be traveling with us. One was a man being shot out of a cannon. Another one, I don't remember. And the other one was Eloise Birchtold and his and the Paramount Bears, which included Zero, who was a polar bear. Now, when I went out with the road with the circus, the polar bears went their own, the polar bear and his trainer went the other, another direction. Oh, so polar bears have really been like little snippets throughout your life. Yeah, I, w- I would say. And it's even more, you know what I mean? It's just, it's just snowballing. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so what happened with that is that, um, well, just to explain the prop thing, well, it was a little different in Hempstead. I think we had a, no, we had a flying act in both. I don't know what the third act was, mm-hmm. but who cares? Um, <laughs> I do remember the man shot out of the cannon, though, and I do remember the bear act. But when we went out on the road, there'd be three rings and four prop men. We lived in the prop truck, in the front of the prop semi-truck, and they carried the props in the back of the truck. And uh, we each had a bunk, four bunks. And two of us took care of the num- ring number one, and two of us took care of ring number three. We all took care of ring number, the center ring. So if you needed two people to do something in the one ring, in other words, as I, if I was assigned a ring one, I would never do anything in ring three. Mm-hmm. But I would do stuff in the center ring. So we had four hands in the center ring if we needed and up to two in the end rings. And uh, the guy, um, actually, the, I'm confusing it with something. No, no, it was, yeah, it was, it was Hunt Brothers. I've been with other circuses, hasn't it? Yeah, few. But uh, yeah, so I was, I was a prop man with the show. But during the, um, there was a performance in which Eloise and her bears had an assistant. He had been an oiler on the on Lake Michigan, which meant he worked on a, some kind uh-huh. of ship or something. I don't know. Oh, anyway, he was, he was not really a show business kind of guy, but he was her assistant. And one day he picked up the trinka, which the bear foot chuckled on. Uh-huh. <laughs> <he's saying> uh, <laughs> and uh, the leg fell off. Well, I was a prop man, but I wasn't really the guy for the bear act. And it was in the center ring. So I ran in, picked up the leg, put the leg in the table and ran out. You know, I kind of expected she might thank me. And uh, so I was, you know, hanging around. 
fine. And she, she said, she deigned to talk to me. And she said, uh, she didn't say thanks for putting the leg on the table. She said, never run around bears. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> oh That's a cue for them to chase you. <laughs> <laughs> However, uh, she did take my name and telephone number. And later in the season, and this is sort of a no-no, but I didn't make the season with one brothers, because it offered a job with Eloise and her bears, because the, the guy left or got fired or whatever, and she needed someone. So I flew out to Toledo, took a bus, practical bus out. I imagine I took a bus out to Toledo and uh, became her assistant for, in the summer You were assistant on a bear 62. Wow. And then I went back, I finished Pasadena Playhouse, and I went back and did another. Uh, what kind of like tricks did you assist with? Well, I, a lot of it was based on the thing that I'm personifying now with the... Yeah, this is all really coming, bear. becoming clear, but, your, your act. But I used to have, there was, we had a motorcycle that was welded into second gear. I had to start the motorcycle, hold it, straddle the front wheel while the bear got on. The bear invariably clawed at me and the trainer hit him hit her in the face to zero. Because I don't know, I, I'm not going to say the bear was abused, but I'm, the way she put it, he said there was a knife switch on the back of the back wheel of the motorcycle. And that's the only thing that would stop the motorcycle is if you open that switch and then the electricity is no, you know, no longer going from the battery to the, so that was the only way to stop it. She said, only let her drive around three times and then don't ever not get that switch because she does not like going around four times. <laughs> <laughs> but the deal is, she's, you know what I mean? That's what animal mm -hmm. training sort of is. There's a deal. And the animals are expected to do something certain and they're not expected to do any more or less. And that's the deal. I mean, it's not crazy. I mean, people think it's crazy, but it's right. not. It's absolutely sensible. And so if the bear's out in the ring with you, you can pat it on the head. If it's back in its own cage, you don't pat it on the mm -hmm. head. And the cage is not like a cage. The, the hostile territory for a caged bear is outside the cage, not in the cage. Mm -hmm. In the cage is that is the that, bear's right. own space. Mm -hmm. That's their home. Mm -hmm. People do not get it. It's a, Why do you think people don't get it anymore? What Was it PETA and all these various animal rights groups, or was it something else that changed the culture? I, th I think it was more PETA than anything else. But, you know, people get angry with me when I say things like, you know, slavery, we didn't become enlightened and give up slavery in the South until we had the, uh, what, the cotton, what is it? The cotton gin. The cotton gin. Yeah. Then we didn't need the slaves, so we freed them and we felt good about ourselves. Come on, give me a break. You know, or we stopped, we stopped taking whales. After oil was discovered in Pennsylvania, we didn't need the whales for their blubber and their oil. Come on. Mm -hmm. I mean, human beings are very self-serving. They're not. And, and when they get on this high horse about, uh, oh, well, you're abusing the animals or uh, I don't I don't get that either. You know, I mean, I'm, and as you can see, I'm quite emotional. About yeah, it, it seems disingenuous. You almost. can hear I'm emotional yeah. about it. But uh, 
No, it's very sad because then Rosie Mendez has introduced legislation here in New York City, and now I don't know if the, I don't know what the timetable is, but exotic animals, whatever mm. that means, will be banned from circuses. Yeah. Yep. Uh, well, what is a domestic animal? A domestic animal is a is an exotic animal that's been domesticated, and they return to wild fast. Yeah, cats do it in like two generations, right? Yeah, yeah. they've become feral all over again, mm -hmm. like that. I mean, not ones born in captivity, but the next generation, feral right away. Dogs, put a pack of dogs together, they're already feral. Mm -hmm. I mean, they'll attack, I mean, if they'll attack babies. I mean, it's, yep. yeah, they're, they're not. <laughs> They're not on our wave like we think they are, but they're not. They mm -hmm. they have their own psychology and, mm -hmm. and things that they that they do. So after uh, that bear act, were you? Why was your brain still attached to juggling and not? I'm going to go do an animal act now that I have. I'm this doing. Piece of I want to do an animal act now because it's illegal. I mean, I'm, I'm, I probably shouldn't say this on the record, but I'm actually trying to blur the distinction between what is and isn't an animal because. As I, as I just said, what's domesticated and what's exotic. Those, yeah. mean, those labels mean as much as uh, gay, straight, uh, lesbian. Those labels mean nothing to me anymore. And if you look you at know? circus history, you know there are many performers who couldn't leave the show, weren't getting paid in a similar way, were not treated great by the uh, the circus owner. Like we did um, an interview with this guy Salama Wabi, who was a Moroccan acrobat. Uh -huh. uh, fourth or fifth episodes we did. And so sort of just talking about like being trapped on a show. The re only reason I'm bringing it up is because going back to your point, what's domesticated, who is an animal, who is and isn't being treated well on a show. It's not as if uh, necessarily the people on the show are being treated so great and have all of these these rights. And well, yes, I mean if you take this story by, uh, I think it's James Otis Kaler, but it's Otis K. His last name was Kaler, but he went by Otis. Wrote this book probably a hundred years ago called. Ten Weeks with the Circus, Toby Tyler, or Ten Weeks with the Circus. It was a tirade against the circus. And uh, this kid, you know, doesn't like his uncle, or, you know, is raising him, and so he joins the circus. And he's made to ride, you know, do horseback. And, uh, and, you know, it's a horrible existence. He can't wait to get back. But then when Disney made it, 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 didn't, it wasn't that way at all. When Disney made Toby Tyler, First of all, Mr. Stubbs is not a monkey, he was a chimpanzee, and he doesn't really get killed by a hunter. You know, it's, it's a totally different thing. So, uh, yeah, but those abuses were real, and red lighting and all of that stuff yeah, exactly. took place. There's no doubt about it. I don't know if we can really ascertain the extent of any of it, but it did exist. Mm -hmm. They would throw people off the train in the middle of the night so they wouldn't have to pay them for working. Yeah, or they'd hold your passport if you're in a foreign country yeah. hostage. You can't leave without us. Um, now, I've never, the only thing I had with, with Hunt Brothers Circus, I had to forfeit one week's pay because they have what they call Hunt Brothers or Hold Back HB. <laughs> <laughs> they don't pay you for one week until you make the season. Then you mm. get paid for that. Uh, but I but I wanted to work with uh, Eloise in particular this one particular bear, particular and uh, so uh, I got, I learned a lot about bears, and uh, I, I feel a big responsibility now, and I take this seriously. Uh, there are 
probably between 20 and 22,000 polar bears left in the world. And there are something like 19 populations. And three of those populations are dwindling. One is increasing. And the other 15, we simply don't even know enough about to know if they're getting bigger or smaller. Mm -hmm. And they're such magnificent animals. They're the largest uh, uh, mammal, land-based uh, carnivore in the, in the world. Even bigger than grizzly bears, although they can mate. As <laughs> hmm. <coughs> occasionally see a hybrid of half grizzly, half Oh, polar. wow. But they need to live on ice. And uh, there's, there's several threats to the polar bear right now. One is global warming because the ice melts later and later and they get, they're getting smaller, they're getting hungrier, they're going around people more, and if they do it too much, they get shot, and then the cubs become orphans and have to, have to go to a zoo, hopefully a circus, that would be the best thing for them. Uh, that's at least my story. Uh, and then um, the next thing I think is the hunting, because indigenous people in the five countries that there are still bears are allowed to hunt them because it's their whole culture, their whole lifestyle, how they were. So there are bears basically in Greenland, which is part of Denmark, Norway, Canada, Alaska, which is the United States, and Russia. And they're pretty much protected. However, in, uh, in Canada, they can, you can, if you wanted to go and shoot a polar bear, you could. You'd have to pay it's the Canadian government, a good sum of money. You'd have to have an Inuit guide, and the guide would have to lead you to the bear, and then you could kill the bear. The Canadian Crazy. government would get the pelt, the indigenous person would get the meat and all, all the rest. You get a photograph of yourself with your gun or your bow and arrow standing over the dead bear. And uh, I doubt, and I doubt if you could even bring any part of that bear back into the United States because mm -hmm. it's an endangered species. Uh, so there's the global warming, and then there's the hunting. Then there is the um, well, the ban of them in circuses. That's big. <laughs> I mean, if they're not allowed to perform in the circus, what are they going to do? Yeah. And then there's also the chemical. Uh, the, chemo the toxins in the water uh, in the Arctic Circle, the Arctic Ocean, if you want to call it that. Um, the, I think they're, they're not PVCs. That's where I make my cylinder up. But it's the other one, the PV. Oh, it's like what's in the wa like plastic water bottles. That exactly. Yep. That's poisoning the environment for the polar bears. And apparently it affects... Um, we, we humans don't have penis bones. Not even the women. But... Uh, <laughs> But bears, most, most mammals and animals do. And apparently these chemicals weaken the bone and makes it very brittle, so it can mm. snap. And that's not good for reproduction of bears. I don't know the extent of that. Uh, uh, and I don't, I don't think that's necessarily a major, major, major threat. Um, I have mixed feelings about harvesting. I mean, I can see where, you know, it could be good for the population to be you know, winnowed out or not, or something like that. But these hunters are going for the biggest bears, you know, apparently. And so in my act it, in, that I'm working on, that you don't know about yet. Uh, What's well, a new one? It starts with the, uh, the bear has a, you know, a picket sign. And the previous one was global warming. 
But now I have two more. There's the these ones sitting over here. Well, we won't spoil what they say. So yeah, people gotta come see it. Uh, I'm not reading it on, uh, on a podcast. <laughs> Someone else will have to read it. <laughs> or come see my act. Yeah. That would be good. Uh, so yeah, I'm I I part of part of the the act I'm working on now. Now that I'm no longer at NYU, uh, no longer teaching. I still work at Circus Flora. That's a big part of my life. And in the next show, uh, uh, we're talking about me being a chef uh, in a hotel where the bellhop is missing. And the bellhop is going to be played by a former student of mine at Brooklyn Clown College by the name of Adam Kukler. It's one of our be his, very favorite people. I think he's going to be his third or fourth season yeah. of Flora. Also a previous podcast guest. Oh, oh great. Yeah. great. Well, I'm following in the footsteps of the best. <laughs> uh, and then Amy G, of uh -huh. whom I've been a fan for many, many, many years, is going to uh, play the uh, Agatha Christie, the female detective. Character. Oh, fantastic. So how did we, you get in? Sorry, I don't mean to okay. cut your story off. I just want to know how you got into teaching in the first place. I mean, I also want to hear a bit more about your performing career, but... Well... My performing career is mostly ahead of me, but my teaching career is kind of legendary. I, I started teaching at NYU in 1966, and I'd done very little teaching before. I did teach in a recreational program in 1960 or 61 at Pine Mountain, Georgia, which was uh, had to do with this, uh, FSU Circus, Florida State University Circus mm -hmm. in residence at Pine Mountain. I was in the first year that ever did that, huh. which is 60 or 61. Uh, I don't know which it was. <laughs> I think it was 61. Um, but then they've done it more. We were only 11 of us that year. And uh, there was two coaches, three women, seven men. And now it's huge. I mean, mm -hmm. it's, it's a big thing now. And Club Med grew out of that and everything. But that was the only teaching I did before I got the appointment at NYU. And I got that in 1966. Uh, it had to do with masks, like some of the masks over there. Mm -hmm. uh, there were masks for the Commedia dell'arte that had been made, and other masks by Amleto Sartori, an Italian. And uh, they had been exhibited at the uh, Casa Italiana, probably, or the, I don't know, the Italian embassy and then uh, I was working at the time at Columbia University at the Brander Matthews Dramatic Museum cataloging puppets mainly because I love puppets and the masks were brought in by uh, Davidson Taylor because he thought it'd be a good exhibit to have and we were cataloging the masks for the exhibit and Carlo Mazzoni Clemente came to make sure the mask because he had been a friend of Amleto and uh, he made sure the masks were being properly displayed. And because I, was, I had these little six little Comedia dell'arte puppets, and I, I asked him, I said, can you just help me with identifying? I said, that's Arlecchino, right? And Pantaloni and Dottore and Brighella and Pedrolino. And I said, yeah. Anyway, later I went back, and the curator had said, you know, he was that Carlo was kind of amazed that I knew the characters, the characters of the Comedia dell'arte. And then the next, and he, 
and it had been told that I worked in the circus. So the next time he was in Brandemasters Dramatic Museum, he said, hey! and I knew he wanted me to get up on his shoulders. So I did. <laughs> so I took his hands and got up on him. Your curator was going crazy. He was like, oh, be careful. There's a model of the Roman Museum over here. You know? And that, that sort of was an instant, I mean, I didn't know that there was anything going on between us when I identified the Commedia characters. Right. But I knew when I stood on his shoulders, something was happening, you know. And then he was going to start teaching at NYU, and he wanted me as his assistant. So he, and then we did a show at Casa Italiana in, at Columbia with the masks, and I played Arlecchino in a mask, which I'd never done before. And he played Punchinello uh, in a mask on the stage, which would never happen historically because Punchinello is a southern comedic character and Arlequin is a northern. But, you know, this is many years later. Cutting it fast and loose. So he was insulting me in Italian. I have no idea what he was saying. And I did a Buster Keaton fall that I learned, uh, actually when I was at FSU Circus teaching myself, in which I put one leg up on the stage and then the other, because I was trying to get up on the stage, I came through the audience and did this Buster Keaton crash fall. So then he wanted me to teach with him at NYU. So he got an interview with me and Ted Hoffman, and he was at the interview. And Ted Hoffman was asking me, you know, what I wanted to do. And they were also trying to keep me out of Vietnam. And uh, so I said, well, I really, I'm really interested in the community. I liked everything. It was going nowhere. <laughs> and so Carlos, Carlos was in the, sitting in the corner. He said, do the bus speed travel. So there's a coffee table, and I went on. The coffee table is harder than a high table. But I went over to the coffee table, put one foot up on the coffee table, put the other foot up on the coffee table. My butt did a pratfall, and Ted Hoffman stood up and said, excuse me, and walked out of the room. <laughs> he came back within 20 minutes with a appointment, a letter of appointment to me, to the faculty, part-time, of, of NYU. <laughs> How old are you? I would have been about, well, it was the summer, I would have been, I would have been 20, well, it was the summer of 66, I would have been 25. Wow, cool. Uh, 25 years old. What did you like about teaching? What was the appeal to it? Well, I was, I really was interested in learning about Canadian Delarte, and I was interested in circus, and the best way to learn circus is to teach it. Mm -hmm. You want to learn, you know, a language, you know, go to that country and teach English, you know, and you'll learn the la that language, I'm sure. I don't know if you can, I'm just, I'm just making this up. <laughs> but, In my head, I was like, oh God, I but anyway, still I, suck. By doing the rudiments of circus over and over again, I, you know, I never became really a champion of anything, but I think my basic skills would improve each year because I would do it, you know, over and over again. And I would say they improved and of the 50 years, I, 51 and a half years I taught there, they improved for a long time. Then they reached the point where I think, uh, as I was passing my prime and diminishing returns set in and so forth, they might have more or, less, more or less stayed the same rather than improving. I know the tightrope got worse. Hmm. I know that I used to demonstrate the tightrope by going, and I only did it, I didn't do it the first 10 years. The tightrope came in after and was low, Hello, 26 yeah. inches. But uh, about 1960, 1976, I would have started teaching the tightrope. And I would walk, I would explain it, walk across and walk back. Every year, walk across and walk. And I didn't practice in between. 
sport program. So once a year. Every year. And I could usually do it right off. Uh, if I couldn't do it the first time, I could get it the next time. And then years went by, and I could get across, but I couldn't get back. Mm. So I stopped going back, just to go across. And then I got to the point where getting across at once was ho pretty hopeless. So I stopped even trying. I would have someone, I would just have the students do it. I didn't want to try eight times, you know, it was like, that was crazy. So uh, I just could actually detect my dimin diminution. Is that a word? Sure. Diminishing. Diminishing of my powers on the tightrope. Other than tightrope, what kind of things would uh, a student have learned in your class? Well, we definitely did trapeze, we did rollabola, we did balancing sticks, we did ball juggling, ring juggling, and club juggling. We did a little bit of rolling globe, not a lot. We did tightrope, we did slack rope, and we did foot juggling at times, we did rope spinning, we did uh, devil sticks. Oh, I can do devil sticks. There you go. <laughs> Got my one skill. Oh, that's good. When did you start doing bounce juggling? The bounce juggling has an interesting story. Again, parental uh, intervention on that. Uh, we lived in Battle Creek, Michigan at the time, and I got some Harry Mall balls, which were very good for bouncing. And in the winter time, how did you? How were you finding out about all of these different balls and like where to get them? And well, I originally did magic, so. I, and from Kankakee, Illinois, is an hour from Chicago. And Chicago is the magic capital of the United States, mm -hmm. even though it's the second city. New York is not the magic capital of the United States. <laughs> so I would go up to Chicago, not only to see Shrine Circuses, actually saw so Zero perform at the, at the Medina Temple before I ever worked with her. Zero is the polar bear. Yeah. And uh, so I, would, I went to the, there's a, there was a magic place I forget what it was. It was on Randolph Street, and there was a what they called a pro shop upstairs where professional magicians could get stage mm -hmm. tricks. And I used to go up there, and they had these small stage balls for juggling. That's how I, I went from magic to juggling. Uh, there's in Colon, Michigan, which is very near where I live. I finally visited Colon, Michigan, not for a long time, but I did eventually. Uh, so when uh, I was in Battle Creek, Michigan, and I was still probably doing well, I learned to juggle in Kankakee, Illinois. <laughs> I'm not sure. But anyway, it was, I did magic, and uh, uh, there was a, what was it called, the Tops? Abbott's had a magic cattle, a magic magazine, and someone had a column about comedy. I don't know, was it Robert Orban or someone else? And he did two issues on jokes for jugglers. So if you miss, you say this. <laughs> Right. Some they, kinds of covers. Horrible yeah. jokes. And I'm like, well, I could do those jokes if only I learned to juggle. <laughs> and I knew my father could juggle, so I had him show me how. He didn't teach me how, he showed me. Just a regular three ball cascade. Yeah, he showed me the cascade. And I spent a whole day learning it. And in fact, that is probably one of the reasons that I was so good at teaching, if I was, which is probably not for me to say, but. Uh, well, you're there a hundred semesters, so you probably were doing something yeah, right. Something <laughs> but on that day, I learned to juggle. I did everything wrong, practically. I had a, my parents who uh, unreformed golfers. Uh, they, uh, but they in the basement there were 
walls they practiced with. And the basement had a drain and it was slope. So I had a table similar to this stool that the microphones are on. And I just put a bucket of balls there. And I would take three golf balls and throw them. I'd take three more and, throw, and try to catch whatever I could catch. And uh, I probably started at maybe 11 in the morning and maybe 3.30 there in that afternoon. And during that time, I dare say, I probably made every possible mistake. So even today, if someone, a beginning juggler, shows me what they're doing, I can tell them the one thing that would make their juggling better more than anything else. And then, you know, if they, if, if they can do that, they're juggling better. If they can't do that, it doesn't goes in one ear and out the other. Can't get their body, they can't really listen and take in what I'm saying. Then they're stuck. I give mm -hmm. them the same note over and over again. Then they should be foot jugglers, maybe. Maybe they should be foot jugglers. <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, I learned to juggle that day. And then I got less and less interested in the magic. I said, why am I going to learn to palm a card and nobody knows how hard it is? I want to do something that people can see obviously <laughs> is hard, like juggling. And that's sort of when I transferred to, from magic to juggling rather than combining I did one show, I know I did one show at, in college though, and not college, in high school. In college, I, in high school, I did one show in which I was a clown, and I rode a unicycle, and I did magic, and I juggled. A one-man show. And Yeah, it was a one-man show, and I was, I got laughs from the clown where I didn't expect them, mm -hmm. and that was very disconcerting to me. <laughs> I mean, why I didn't pursue clowning at that point, I don't know. But I didn't. I did later. I didn't. I didn't pursue clowning again until I went to FSU, and the coach made me. But you hold like a seven. A you hold like a seven-ball bounce juggling record of some kind, right? I thought I was reading online, like first person to do some kind yeah, of pattern. Yeah, so-called lift bounce. Now called lift bounce. I never called it. lift bounce. Yeah. Um, the, the story. Well, the story about that I didn't even finish really. My mother would only in the winter. My mother would only let me juggle in the basement, and the basement had a ceiling of a foot above my head. Oh. <laughs> But it had a concrete floor with linoleum over it, and I'd been to the pro shop in Chicago, mm -hmm. and I'd seen a box of balls, and I bought the balls and started bouncing them around, and I preferred it to doing my math homework. <laughs> like the only F I ever got in high school was in, or D, D or F I got, uh, was in math. And I was like, I can't do those equations. I'm going to go <laughs> practice my juggling. But I think juggling is a better form of math than anything they were trying to teach me mm. in high school. And in any case, I've gotten a lot of trouble with the teacher and my mother. But I did learn to bounce seven balls. And I knew that there were seven balls. And I think that, you know, it was all good. Um, and yeah, I became famous for bouncing seven balls. Um, well, I mean, my fame preceded me. Uh, maybe maybe I get back to that. Uh, that was another thing. You know, I would usually each year I would teach it at NYU. I'd demonstrate the seven, even though I never practiced it. <laughs> I would demonstrate it, and then it got to the point. Now I can do five. I can do five pretty solidly. But um, first of all, I don't think I have the ball, the same balls, or I don't know where they mm. are. And just being a little slightly different in bouncing to mm. the density can pose a problem. But you know, now that I don't teach anymore, I think I might get back to the seven. I might be able to 
seven for seventy-seven. Yeah, it's hard to say, but if, if I did it right in the library uh, outside my my apartment has wooden floors, but in the concrete, uh, I used to try to practice in the nearer warehouse in the hallway because it had concrete. There's something about being in the hallway is like yeah, it didn't work for me. But now in Alphabet City, I have a huge library in a room that's 10 by 20. That's the main room. Of and the that library. has all your old circus stuff? Oh, no, just books. There's oh. another room for the circus equipment that left NYU. And I was with my librarian just past weekend. We were putting in book plates, book plates, book plates in the books. Because uh, that's one of the things I want to do. Uh, I skip before I keep the bucket. I want to put book plates in my books. And after three hours of that, I said, "I said, Taylor, I can't. I have to juggle. I can't." And uh, across the hall, you know, there's there's down the hall, there's equipment. I'm gonna go get some balls and juggle. So I was juggling in the middle of the library. I felt right at home. I was not in the hallway. And I bounced them on the floor. And I said, "Oh, this is a whole new thing." Because originally my uh, interior designer was going to make a library on this on this upper floor mm -hmm. of my apartment, my duplex apartment. And we we're going to put books all around and then do the circus gym in the middle. And then at a certain point she realized there were way too many books. There would, would be no way to do that. So these are just all types of books, novels, nonfiction, just... They're mostly related to circus one way or another. Now there are a few in my bedroom and a few on the on the bookcase uh, that you're looking at right now, but most of them are in the library, and they're all there's two different ways. There, there are three different ways I have them cataloged. First and foremost, if they're in the Raymond Toolstadt bibliography of circus books, which runs to five volumes from the beginning to about 1980, they're in one room five by eight room. And uh, if they're not, if they're later or if he missed them, they're in catalog according to the Library of Congress and they're in the big room. And then if they're not in Toolstop and they're not in Library of Congress, then I put them on shelves according to language. Wow. So uh, there's like uh, even, even books in English, um, there are books printed in Britain that are not in Library of Congress. There are books printed in Canada that are not in Library of Congress. And there are books from Australia. So there's books in English, and Canadian, British, and Australian. And they're together. So we talked about this a little bit off the record before the podcast, but one of my life goals is to build a pretty substantial circus library. We have about two of these levels of bookshelves filled. But I'm wondering if you have any tips for... I didn't know this when we, uh, you know, started dating. And then he was like, I want to build a big circus collection. It's like, we're going to need a bigger apartment. Any tips for, for putting that together? Well, the first tip is to ingratiate yourself with me and hope I die soon. Hubby, <laughs> <laughs> I'll help but, you with all your books. <laughs> but the second would be... I don't think it would be too difficult to do now because a lot of people are going digital and they're just scanning the books and all but discarding them. Uh, any books on wild animal training, people don't want them to be seen in their apartment because they think they're politically incorrect. 
Like if you look, take Bill Valentine's book, Wild Tigers and Tame Fleas, you, you can get tons of that. Try to find his book on Clown Alley. You know, right. I mean, I have quite a few of them actually, but um, yeah, well, that would be, that would might be tip number three. See if Hubby is deaccessioning de de anything, because in the past he never was. But maybe, maybe he would have. Maybe he has duplicates of things, and it's now that he's getting his library catalog and has a librarian and everything. Any maybe, duplicates? Maybe he'll feel that he has to get rid of some books. Well, well we're open. We've got the space. <laughs> Yeah, well, if you have the space, that's big. And you're in Brooklyn? Yeah, yeah. we're in Brooklyn. Great. The, the base, I started my collection by, um, I saw on Circus NYC, there was a uh, a woman who was posting um, a notice about, she was the nurse of a woman who had passed, whose mother was a circus performer that fled Nazi Germany and came to Florida and had a huge circus collection of photos and all the programs of the shows she'd been on. And, um, I wonder really if she's the woman that I have the... Tukaro from. She did a hand-to-hand -hand act with her husband. Um, I don't know. I mean, I was told that the woman was a swimmer or something. That had this Maybe. I have written down her name somewhere. We can cross yeah, yeah, reference later. Her name, but like the oldest, uh, Tukaro, like the, it's really the oldest acrobatic book. I have that all right over here. They're beautiful You'd love to books. get your hands on that, wouldn't you? <laughs> yes. That's so, a beautiful book. Is Javi your birth-given name? Yes. Where did where did it come from? It's a last name that became a middle name, and then a, it was my grandfather's middle name. Oh wow! And my father's first name, uh, and my father was a senior. I'm a junior. Yeah, my grandfather's name was Herbert Hovey Burgess. Oh. Nobody called him Herbert. My dad is Herbert. Yeah. It's Herb. I'm not going to say that. Herbert Hoover was president at the time, <laughs> but for some reason they did not call him Herbert. <laughs> I don't know what the. T I, I never wanted to really look up that timing, but right. Uh, it might have been that Herbert Hoover was such a bad president that right. They're like, we're gonna call him Hovey. I became Hovey. I would have been Herbert. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Some people call me Herb. Yeah, you could have been a good Herb. Herb, Herbie. Um, when did you get, or how did you get involved with Flora Circus Flora? Um. Yeah, well, I was very involved with Cecil before I got involved with Circus Flora. And so basically what happened was I knew Cecil and then she, David Balding and uh, Anouk, those people started this, Jessica, mm -hmm. started this Jessica circus about, 18, about 1985, I'm going to say about that. Mm -hmm. And then uh, Zoe Leader, who had been with, now deceased, who had been doing the posters for Health Family Service, she moved to New York for a short time, um, partly to see me, I think, but not, nothing really happened between her and me. I don't know why. We seemed to have a lot of admiration for each other, but she was like, maybe I was too New York and she was too California. <laughs> but anyway, um, it's... It, uh, she said, oh, I got to go see Circus Flora. I'm like, yeah, I suppose you could do that. You know, and so in 1990, I didn't go with her, but I mean, she had done it, I think. And I said, well, I guess I should do that too. So I went to uh, St. Louis. At that time, they were doing maybe three different parks. They were going mm -hmm. park to park. And it was 1990, and they wanted me to be in the juggling act. And I said, no, 
I came to see the circus. I want to see the circus. If I'm in the circus, I can't see the circus. Right. If I'm in a polar bear suit, I can't see anything. <laughs> I didn't say that. <laughs> I'm making it up. <laughs> I said, but, I said, if you want me to juggle in the circus, it's very simple. All you have to do is hire me. I'd be glad to do it. So, in the usual way, I, I joined on as a laborer, but I was, did the juggling as well. Uh, in Charleston the following year, 1991, 19, I joined Flora. By that time, Cecil was the director of the show. I think she was all alone. David Balding was the producer or artistic director. Uh, Jack was just a kid then, uh, but he was a kid and he was there. And uh, I sort of worked my way, way up to dramaturg by doing almost every season. There might have been one season we didn't do about the time that Flora retired, the elephant retired. Mm -hmm. I'm not sure exactly, but every season they did, I did. I did some of the symphonies. I, did, I think I did at least two of the symphonies. I, I know I didn't do the first symphony. We may be doing the symphony again, I don't know. Mm -hmm. um, and then I, you know, I just, and eventually what happened was uh, around 2000, after I'd been with the show for about 10 years, uh, some nephew or <coughs> nephew or something of David was on the show and we lived in a hotel and he would drive back and forth. Well, this really did it for me because he was a little strange, but the, thing, the strangest thing of all is he would drive from the hotel to the circus lot and he would get in an intersection and he would stop the car in the middle of the intersection. And I finally, I said, why, why are you doing that? You know, we have a red light, you're driving into the intersection and stopping in the middle of an intersection when we have a red light? Are you crazy? He says, well, in England, we go right up to the light and we stop at the light. And I'm saying, I'm not, I'm not here. I'm either giving up the circus right. or I'm getting an RV. <laughs> I got an RV. And I, but I was not going to subject myself to being driven from a crummy hotel. I mean, that same hotel, the same season, I went in one time. And I don't know if they're doing it. It was a day's in. Mm -hmm. I don't know if they're doing uh, yeah, that's a uh, days in, that is. Um, St. <laughs> Louis, Missouri, downtown. And I went, and the door was unlocked. There was no lock on the door. The lock was all apart on my bed. That plus the stopping in the middle of the intersection for the red line was like, I'm not, I can't do this anymore. But I, I did get a nice RV, which I still have. It's tiny. It's only 16 feet long. Do you use it when you do Florida? I always use it. I live in it. I've been living in it for the last 15, 17 years. Is it in St. Louis right now? No, it's in New Jersey now. Mm -hmm. uh, it's in a RV camp. Actually, it's where Pennsylvania, New Jersey, and New York meet. So will you drive it to St. Louis? Yes. But meanwhile, my mother left me a Jaguar. Oh, wow. You would have thought she maybe would leave me something useful like a car, but she had to leave me a Jaguar. <laughs> so I might want to drive the Jaguar there, oh, too. Oh, that sounds nice. A little huh? bit of cruising. So what? It sounds like fun, you know, a little cruising. Yeah, but I would track. have to make two trips unless I find someone that wants to drive it out there for me. Right. Mm -hmm. But I love to have wheels because the thing about an RV, uh, and it took me a little while to learn this, 
you don't camp going from to get to St. Louis if you want to do it in a short time because by the time you set up camp in a KOA grounds and then tear down, you're exhausted. <laughs> you drive 25 miles and you're ready for another right, stop. Right, right. I realized that at a certain point and then I started saying it best westerns usually mm. and uh, not even just driving into the, you know, Maybe now I, I can't see well at night, so I don't drive at night. But like, and it's better to get a room to get it when it's light anyway. Yeah. Uh, so I would just uh, stop at Best Westerns. I have my favorites along the way. I only go to a KO, KO, KOA without the teeth. It's hard to talk. Um, <laughs> I have a few left, but not 32. I don't know. I haven't counted You still have a few left. I should count them. I shouldn't know how many teeth I have. <laughs> that could be part of your next X. 32 minus X. <laughs> but it, it does make, I have a story about my teeth that remind me. Um, what was I talking about? Oh, yeah. So the last time, I, uh, the last stop on the way to driving to St. Louis, I say the Casey. Um, in Casey, Illinois, they had a KOAO there. I call it Koa because that always said a bear, uh, elephant named Koa. Mm -hmm. But I understand that you don't pronounce it Koa, it's K <laughs> Campgrounds of America or mm -hmm. something. Anyway, I stay there to get propane and make sure everything's working. And then I go right into the lot and hook up. But once I'm hooked up, I don't have, I don't have wheels. So I'm depending right. on Cecil to drive me places. And if it's a, for a blood test or prescription, she's glad to drive me there. If it's for some cockamamie idea I have for a prop, she will not drive me there. <laughs> does not have time for that. So you got to convince Adam Cooper to grab a car and help you. Although uh, oh, yeah. last year, for the last week, I rented a bicycle and it changed my life. Mm -hmm. This week I'm going to go to Mike's Bikes and rent a bike. This year, I'm going to get a bike right away. Because yep. I do have sometimes trouble walking, but I can ride a bike. And I was riding it around the circus lot. Unless we're not an asphalt. If we're not an asphalt, I don't know. It's a little more challenging. Yeah, well, now there's the new... Uh, we have a new space yeah. now, yeah. Yeah, I'm excited to see that. So I don't know exactly what what the, will be with that. But it is nice. It would be nice to have wheels, uh, I think. Just to, you know, I wouldn't do stuff having nothing to do with the circus. That's not my style. But I, w I could do stuff related to the circus with the car if I had it there. Yes. Are you hopeful about the state of circus generally these days? Are you optimistic, pessimistic? What do you think is going on? Wow. You, you saved a $64 question for the last. <laughs> if that was indeed the last question. <laughs> that is an amazing question to ponder, especially the, these last two years and the things that have happened in the last two years. Mm -hmm. um, I am sure that something will happen. I'm not sure what. But you can't suppress that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. uh, again, it was like at a certain time, the Londoners decided it was not in good form to go to the insane asylum and laugh at the people who were crazy. Mm -hmm. uh, and they closed uh, Bedlam Hospital to the public. The circus was, re was invented within 10 years of that. You can't suppress that stuff. I mean, you suppress pornography in the Victorian age, big time, you're going to have the best pornography the world has ever known, mm -hmm. underground. So, if people want circus, and they do, they will have circus one way or another. Mm 
and they'll have bread, bread and circuses. And I hate to harken back to the Roman circuses. It has nothing to do with the modern circus, really, uh, unless you stretch your imagination a whole lot. Uh, but uh, the fate of the circus right now, I think it's, it's going to be kind of interesting. I mean, um, you know, circuses got rid of the sideshows and then Rose and Bindlestiff came in with sideshow stuff, mm -hmm. you know, big time. Um, and Ringling itself, Ringling, Barnum and Bailey, did a whole thing about sideshow acts, fire readers and stuff, was the main show one year, even mm -hmm. though they were the ones that stopped when they moved to the new garden. Now we don't have, after 146 years, we don't have a Ringling Brothers, but we don't have an Astley's either. Mm -hmm. uh, Sanger had taken over Astley's and it was condemned and closed down. I forget how many years that one was, but uh, I did post it on the Facebook. So circuses come and go. So an individual circus is going to be like a Hubby Burgess. Going to be born in 1940 and um, have a career teaching and retire and then try to have a second career. And then eventually not maybe being able to do much more than walk across the room and pick up a book. And then end. Uh, circuses are the same way. They don't go forever. And you don't. You shouldn't expect them to go to forever. I mean, uh, Ringling, had, Ringling, Barnum and Bailey had a long run, mm -hmm. starting with Barnum and adding Bailey and, and the Ringling Brothers taking over. And then uh, John Ringling North taking over. And then the Fells buying and ruining it. <laughs> if you like. I mean, blame them, blame PETA, blame whoever you want. Mm -hmm. But it's it somehow, and yet, their, their last show that I saw was beautiful. Yeah, we went to the final the performance. Yeah. Yeah. The, the out, out of, of this, this world. world. Was, yeah. It was out of this world. Yeah. yeah. Perfect name for it. I was but like they had weeping in my chair, like, oh my yeah. God, this is so all the families. And the ice skating and everything. Yeah. And then they waited and, uh, and there was that wheel that was like the Cox sisters had done in Russia. Yeah. The, uh, what was that called? Um, semaphore? Is that the yeah, name of that? Yeah. Semi, semi sphere. Oh, was it where the, that was yeah. like the astronaut climbing up? That was yeah. a recreation of an act that was long ago. They didn't play that up in the program. No. no. Josh told me about it, though. But it was. And uh, so my answer is that the elements of circus will never go away. You know, and, um, Juggling predates circus. The foot juggling, when Cortez arrived in what is now Mexico, the natives were foot juggling. And he took one of them back to Spain. And that was the first time they ever saw an Indian. And whether or not they'd seen a foot juggler or not, I don't know. There may have been foot juggling in China. But uh, I, I feel it's what I'm doing with the cylinder, I, I, feel, I feel it just traced back to. Mm -hmm. uh, Cortez and uh, Montezuma and Mexico. Hmm. Uh, I mean, I mean, basically, I feel that. But, but I think circus. The, the thing is, when it gets regulated, that's that's the problem. It's, I mean, I don't mind if the Felds close the circus. Mm -hmm. They don't have to do it. No problem. But when people close them, when they, um, like, if you hand me that bullhook, you see that little bullhook. Right on the top, not the yeah. Hand me that thing. If you ban this, then you can't have elephants. For thousands of years, these have been used to control elephants, and you can't cut your wrist with it. You know? No, what it's I mean? really light too. It's light, and it's 
It's harmless. It doesn't feel like anything. Yeah. And what is an elephant is a pachyderm. What does pachy mean? Thick. A yeah, thick their, their skin, skin is really thick. And so how does the mother move the calf around? With her tusks. How does a keeper move an elephant around? With a little tusk. It's so f, f simple. Why can't people get that? They can do things on their computers I can't even begin to do, but they can't get this simple concept that doesn't even require literary literacy. Yeah. Well, I think it's people nature. think they know, right? And then they don't take the time to really, really know and understand and listen. And that's like hopefully what this podcast can also help with is just like making people like learn and listen a little bit more about things that they think they know about. I could show you a, co a choke collar or a, <laughs> a ball a, gag, a bridle uh, that is much more vicious than that. Oh, a mm. horse. Yeah. For a horse, yeah. For thought. horses and dogs. I thought you were talking about... The so-called domesticated animals that <laughs> yeah. are controlled through cruelty. Right. Well, when I ride horses, you have a little crop whip, you mm. know, and it's... You know, it signals them. Yeah. Yeah. So, I don't know where, you know, I don't know. Um, but I think that need to be entertained that thing that Barnum put his finger on that's not going to go away I don't think it, it may take different forms I mean I mean today to be a performer today I mean I'm trying to put together an act and it, and to put together the act that I want to put together is costing me thousands of dollars and this is for gigs that basically pay for two people would pay a hundred dollars fifty each, mm -hmm. but you got to start somewhere, and uh, I never had the means to do it right before. So I'm trying to do it right. So uh, yeah, if that head doesn't, if that polar bear head doesn't work for me, I have another one made that I. It's a new design that's a, that maybe will improve on it. You know, uh, so my my thing now is I want to. I want to do, and let's put it this way, as long as I'm around, I'm going to be doing circus. So if people want to come watch me do circus, they can, because I'll be doing it. But yeah, uh, I mean, Brinkley's gone. I don't know, and I don't know how you regard this, but uh, I don't teach a circus at NYU anymore the same year. Uh, LeVon Ho doesn't teach circus history because he didn't get enough students down in West Virginia. Yeah. Clown College has been closed for over 25 years now. That was really the impetus for doing this because we've now had nearly 65 guests on to our, you know, storied careers in this industry. And I, as an 18-year-old, was like, unless I get like a really old book, which is not always the most fun to like read and try to understand, there's no way for me to hear these stories or know what happened. So hopefully this is at least a little bit of a substitute for that. But um, it's a challenge, particularly in the States. Well, you're doing a valuable work because you're doing what librarians call oral history. Mm -hmm. Yeah. <laughs> we can add our podcast to your library. Oh, yeah. <coughs> it doesn't mean that you have to call it oral history. <laughs> that, to me, would be like calling theater speech interpretation. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I do, I do want to ask you the same three questions we ask each guest um, okay. and get your take on it. The first being, is there a piece of advice, really good or really bad, that has stuck with you over the course of your life? Well, yes. I think um, it's actually a tri... Trifecta? 
No, it's a three-pronged three oh, three piece of advice. And it's the advice I gave at the spur of the moment, really, when it was clear to me that NYU did not want me recounting the history of the last 50 and a half years, one and a half years. So they said, you could speak a little bit if you want. So I got to my feet and I said, you know, I don't think I should leave without giving you guys some advice. And I think it was the best advice I could have given them, you or myself. And the advice was really based on the lives of Malcolm X, Marilyn Monroe, and Buster Keaton. Mm. And I won't go into detail because I just want to give you the advice because that's what you asked me for. And uh, you can figure out what advice goes with what person if you prefer. <laughs> <laughs> but one, take care of yourself. Not sure Marilyn Monroe took good enough care of herself. And two, pay attention to details. I think Malcolm X did that. But the question is, did, did Spike Lee do that when he made that movie about him? Mm -hmm. And he's about to be assassinated and he's on the phone and it's on a big screen and there's a modular thing on the phone. That looks to me like not paying attention to detail and it destroyed the whole illusion for me. So I said, this is not Malcolm X in the 60s. This is a telephone from 20 years later, after Ma Bell was dismantled. So pay attention to details. And thirdly, I told you about how I got the job at NYU. If you can't be original, copy someone who is really good, but wait till they're dead. <laughs> Those are perfect. That's amazing. <laughs> so the second question of our three. Okay. I love that. Is, um, this is gonna be a good one for you since you're such a library. For somebody who is a student, maybe they're 15 or 16, just getting into circus now, is there a book or a movie or a live show that if there's one thing they've got to see what is what or read, what is that one thing? Well, in your first question, I had two answers. I have three answers for it. Maybe your second question, I have two answers for Great. it. I would say that the very best history of circus book is A Seat at the Circus by Anthony <coughs> <coughs> Hipsy Connors. Okay. You can take a photo of yeah. that. So it was, this is a revised oh, edition. Here I can. Uh, of it. Because I've taken. A Seat at the Circus. And it was a series. It was a seat at the ballet, a seat at the cinema, a seat, you know, not by the same guy. This, this was the circus guy who wrote this one. And it, uh, this is a book play, by the way. Mm -hmm. And that's the tool stop number, and that's the Library of Congress number. Oh, cool. And the reason I borrowed it is because there's a nice picture in here. But it's got lovely drawings of, oh, I wow. mean, I've only seen this act once. Uh, well, it's a three hired well, horse that horse. he's pointing to. I think we can post all these, these, I, I'm going to take photos of everything that we've talked about so we can post them so people can see like oh, the yeah. masks and stuff. What about the bears? I took a photo of the bear. I don't know. You might not want to photograph my slave harness, but everything. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you have to see the slave harness live. <laughs> live. But that's, that would be the book, either that or even the original edition of it. Mm. Uh, a Seat at the Circus is, in my opinion, the best well, introduction. It's intended for people to see, see beyond the obvious when they go to the circus and see it, and I think it does it very well. 
And the movie for me is Trapeze. I mean, I don't know if it's the movie for everybody, but if I hadn't seen Trapeze, I wouldn't be who I am. And I saw it, and that's the only, the only circus building left in Paris that was this, where that was shot, the Winter Circus in Paris. And that's directed by Carol Reed, if you're interested. Carol Reed was the director, board. yes. And Burt Lancaster, uh, Tony Curtis, and Gina Lola Bridget are working it. That's like the, the modern-day version of this is Zac Efron and uh, Zendaya from... Oh, did you see The Greatest Showman? No. Oh, we have neither. I'm dreading it. But I, I, I know I have to see it, but I'm dreading yes. it. I don't think there's any historical element to it. I think it's all, all fictionalized. Yeah. Angelo, Angelo um, saw it, and he said, you're not going to like it, Abby. Because I don't like when they don't. when they, You know, I, I don't even like when I say that Paige Walter is a polar bear trainer, but I have to do it. You know what I mean? It's like I can't not do it because yeah. those uh, people, Peta and Rosie Mendez and so forth, I, my, you know, my, my hatred for them is so huge, and I despise them so much. I will even violate history, my, my <laughs> sense of history, to get back at them. And they won. Yeah, you know they, what I mean? I am now in the position of the minority, of the conquered person that's been enslaved by these people. Mm -hmm. But that's a better position to be in, actually, if you want to make a point. <laughs> true. Okay, our final question is, who do you think we should have on the podcast? And you can't say yourself because everyone else already said you. And now well, you what if we I finally name somebody, have you. What if I name someone that's already been on? We'll tell you. Okay. Keith Nelson. Got him. We got him. This is a trick answer. Adam Kukler. Got him. I knew that. <laughs> uh, Jack Marsh. Got, got him. Shit. Cecil McKinnon. No, Not yet. I haven't gotten Cecil yet. Okay, good luck. <laughs> good luck getting Cecil. That she would be a, if you could get her to do it. Yeah. It's not her thing. Yeah, she's like she works behind the scenes and does all kinds of things behind the scenes. And even I was revealing things to you that I don't normally. If I was still at NYU, it would have been we would have a different interview. But I don't. There's so many things I don't care about now that <laughs> right. I was. Almost say anything. But know? it'll be nice for people to really get like a full snapshot of kind of where you're at right now. Yeah, well, I'm really excited about doing this act. And uh, yeah, so, where can, can people where see, can it? see it? Yeah. What? Where can we see? So, if, so since we missed the Bindlestiff uh, open open variety night. Well, the next one that we know about will be as a guest of a tour. And the name of the tour is the Tainted Cabaret. Oh, where is that going to be playing? And it's going to be at the Slipper Room oh. on April 15th. I'm not sure the time. It could be 9 o'clock. I'm not sure that check your local stations for a time. But the place will be... The, the and around. I will be already... I will fly in for it because I will already have been starting rehearsals. Right. They're starting earlier this year, Flora. So rehearsals start on the 9th, which means I'll probably be out of here around the 1st of April. April Fool's Day. Just kidding. <laughs> I'll be out of here, okay? Don't trust me. <laughs> um, and then I'll be there, you know, because I might have two vehicles to get there and so on and so forth. I don't have NYU's. So it's... That's more time. So perfect. It's yeah. so perfect. I mean, I'm glad I did that, but I've done that. You right. know what I mean? It's done. When does Flora start the performances? Okay, the performances will, will begin 
on April 19th, April 19th, and they will close on May 13th. So my guess is you won't be wearing your slave harness for Flora. <laughs> Maybe underneath my costume, but you won't see it. Right. We'll give some uh, interior motive. Inner, yeah. inner motivation, as we see in acting. You know, there's a lot of theory about the, the slave harness is supposed to be uncomfortable. I did not find it uncomfortable, except mm. if it pinched my chest here. Yeah. <laughs> now, but I, I just had a chest one. They have ones that go lower. Full body. I can imagine they could be uncomfortable. <laughs> that's true. <laughs> but well, that's not what we wanted for what we were doing. No. It, so, it yeah, the, the one gig that I know we're doing it will be... Um, April 15th at the Slipper Room. Great. But it's a guest slot. It, it says, but I think it is a Sunday, so it's probably the only thing that will be on that day. <laughs> the Tainted Cabaret, which would be a tour with Wilfredo, who's played by Matt Roper, and Ula Uberbussen, who, by the way, is a juggler, who knew her father was a juggler, and uh, A-Cat, oh, Katarina, yeah. who comes from a circus family. I mean, she's totally circus. And is Mike Richter's girlfriend. There you go. <laughs> And then I think they got somebody called somebody in the giant pasty, but I don't know how that is. Great. So April 15th. April 15th. That's the room. Be there. I think we will probably do one slipper in the meantime to get used to it. Mm -hmm. But it'll probably... Amy G, I've, uh, we want her to direct us. I've sent her the, the tape, but she's doing her own show now in Australia. But... Um, in March, we're hoping that she will direct us. And what we would do is we would do, a, I'm pretty sure that I can get a Wednesday night, at least, at the Slipper as an audition for the Slipper, as it were. I'm, and if she has a booking, she'll get paid. Um, and that will probably take us somewhere in March, but not April 15th, but sometime in March, but un, unstated. Um, Lix is going to California on the last day of March. And as I told you, I'm going to St. Louis the first day of April. So it'll be before that if we do it. And what is this, no, late November? Late uh, February. February. Or mid-February. It's Valentine's Day, actually. It's actually Valentine's Day. So I haven't seen Lick since we performed that. I'll see her tomorrow. I sent her a Valentine's text, but I don't know how that'll go over. But, uh, <laughs> I'm looking forward to seeing her tomorrow. I've got it on my refrigerator. I've got after the show we went to dinner and I didn't bring money with me, so we put it all on her card. So I'm reimbursing her, <laughs> and I don't want to forget oh. that. Well, she seems a very valuable partner. If she reminds me of the joke my mother used to say about this guy who was on the golf course and he found a frog, and the frog said, "You know, I'm not really a frog. I'm a talking. Uh, I'm a princess in a frog's body. And if you kiss me, I will turn into a beautiful princess." And the golfer says, at my age, talking frog is more valuable than... <laughs> <laughs> well, I have a beautiful princess as a partner, and, I, and she's very valuable to me. Yeah. So I don't, I'm like going easy on the Valentine's. <laughs> I don't want to muck it up. Fair enough. <laughs> well, Hubby, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. It was thank a real pleasure talking to you. Well, it was a pleasure doing it. Uh, you, you asked all the right questions. And sometime I, I would like to invite you to come and see my library. I would love that. See, see what it is. It's, it's a five-minute cab drive from here. Truly, you name the day. We'll okay. be there. That was our interview with Hubby Burgess. If you like our podcast, make sure to like us on Facebook, 
follow us on Instagram, Twitter, tweet us, subscribe on iTunes, rate us on iTunes, please, 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 or email us at hello at hadwaycircus.com. We hope you have an awesome week and happy hump day. Happy hump day. (laughs) 